So who's starting this week? Am I doing it again? What's up, fanboys and fangirls? Welcome to another episode of... Oh, shit. That's the wrong... (laughs) (laughs) What what, what do we even call our fans? Uh, Insufficience? (laughs) (laughs) Very flattering. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Okay. Well, welcome back. Uh... If you heard the pilot episode and you came back for more, um, you're an amazing person, all four of you. I'm Michael Lake, and this is Insufficiently Advanced, a podcast about technology and entertainment. And my co-hosts here, we have uh, Timothy Bowden. Hello. And Brett Eitzen. I am excited to be here today. That's not what you said earlier. (laughs) well i lied earlier or i'm lying now and it's anyone's guess on what's the truth that i feel like this should be a segment of the show what's the truth with brett are we are we turning this into a game show podcast well yeah we could like a bad giveaway or something oh can i win that new computer you got (laughs) no (laughs) dang it i tried i'm saving that for a future episode after the whole thing i have a uh Tomorrow, the stand for the monitor arrives a full like two or three weeks before the actual monitor is going to be here. (laughs) And so I think I'm just going to set the stand up as like a piece of art somewhere, like conspicuously, you know, well lit. So so you're going to have a thousand dollar stand without without a that's that's without a monitor. (laughs) Yeah, the art. That's the art (laughs) part. Uh, It's beyond ridiculous. You could use that as your mic arm holder <laughs> for the next oh that would be kind of sweet i uh i i really wanted to try to do the visa mount thing but the way my desk is set up uh my desk is actually a dining table that has been repurposed into a large desk and so there's like these metal frames underneath that make it so that i can't clamp anything to the edges very well and i definitely don't want to you know hang a very expensive monitor on a swing arm thing that's maybe not perfectly attached. Yeah, (laughs) that's fair. So I just went with the stand. It's a lot easier that way. Yeah. It's a good call. Anyway. So yeah. uh, Welcome to the show. We got, uh, this is, this is, this is episode one and uh, we did a pilot a couple weeks ago see how this thing works make sure we all know how to you know click record on our microphones turns out yes we do and um it turns out there's a lot going in that goes into publishing a podcast that i wasn't expecting we got through the process of actually recording and then you have to edit your recording and i said i will take on the role of being being the editor i'm not sure that was a good idea but it's a it's a process. It is a process. Um and and I, I had tinkered with editing back uh when I was doing the Destiny Bungie Org podcast. And I thought, you know, modern day new tools, I'll I'll try something new. So I'm reteaching myself audio editing uh while trying to edit the podcast, which makes it take even longer. Mm. Got through the whole process. <laughs> And, um, we, we designed artwork. We'll get into that in a minute. And then, uh, finally had an output file and was like, okay, ready to post this. 
So I go and I find out, you know, you got to build a website you, and you have to set, you have to host the file and you have to mm-hmm. post an uh, RSS, like an XML RSS feed of, of the podcast episodes and have that all formatted properly. And then once you have all that lined up, then you go to iTunes connect and you log in and you submit a new podcast and type in your XML feed URL and hit go. And it says, thank you for your submission. It's under review. Uh, we'll let you know when it's posted. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so bad if people, I'm sure it's just automated unless there's like red flags, but if someone, if there's just a team of people who are just listening to every single submitted podcast, (laughs) that's gotta be the most boring job. (laughs) It's gotta be awful. It has to be automated mostly, right? Like, Oh, so anyway, I was not expecting that. So I immediately Google search, how long does it take to get a podcast published? <laughs> and they say, oh, it can take a few days to a couple weeks. I was thinking, uh-oh, uh, you know, we had sort of set up to, you know, record every other week. And if this isn't even going to publish before our first ones, you know, before we record this, the next episode, that could be ridiculous, but awkward. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it worked out. They published us. Um, I created like a new, like a Google account for us so that it wasn't like my personal one, uh, you know, so we all have access. And, uh, then when I submitted the podcast, apparently the Google tool, um, likes to default back to like your, the first account you've logged into. So I made the account, switched to that account, (laughs) went to the podcast posting app and didn't notice that it had bumped me back to my personal account. So, I submitted it, went through that review process. A couple days later, we got approved. And then I realized it was my personal account. <laughs> so I deleted it, logged back in as the uh, as the shared account, and resubmitted the podcast, which took another few days. So that took a week. Anyway, yeah, there's just like, oh, uh, and then Stitcher. Stitcher's like, okay, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's just, yeah, Stitcher's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I was really happy. Not with so much the others. Yeah, but uh, now we are officially listed, and if you type in search, uh, you know, insufficiently advanced, we come up, which is kind of amazing. It's cool. Like you type in a search result, and boom, there's a beautiful artwork, and well, maybe beautiful artwork depends on who you ask. Yeah, so that's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, I was definitely not expecting the review process. That was a surprise. I. Just that that's totally, you know, naivete on my part, but I, I should have warned you about it because even I had a friend I helped uh, get music posted, like self-published to iTunes. And uh, even there it was, I think he had to wait four days before the song would go up on iTunes. No kidding. Yeah. And it's like, it's a three minute music video or music clip, you know? Interesting. The thing that confuses me is the search result delay so right you submit you submit the podcast and then it takes a few days for them to do the review at the end of that time they they send you an email saying you've been approved here's the like direct link to to your podcast in our system and you'll start showing up in search results in the next couple days it's like 24 to 48 hours and i'm thinking are these not like huge database systems where they can like update these things very quickly. And you type in a search, like how is it that it takes a full day? I wonder if it's just easy. It's just easier to, you know, do them in a, in a batch. Yeah. That's what I'm guessing. Once a day type of thing versus trying to do it every 
so often or whenever yeah. something new is submitted. I, I think that's probably exactly what's going on. But it didn't. It, they didn't say you know after midnight tonight it'll show up. It's, sure, right, sure. But, yeah, it was kind of weird. But uh, both Google and Apple had the exact same experience that way. But we now we're now posted. So subscribe. And if for some reason you've found this podcast and you're not subscribed and where you're looking for us, you can't find us. You can always go to iapodcast.net and find the links there. Yep, exactly. So uh, we, I mentioned it previously, but we had, uh, we have our artwork, which was something we wanted to put together and put some work into to make it visually interesting and stand mm-hmm. out when somebody was searching for, for the podcast. Um, Brett, you, you really kind of got the ball rolling on this. Uh, so I thought maybe you'd want to start talking about it and we could walk, walk through the process. And I just want to say, if you have, um, at least if you're on Apple podcasts or, um, my podcast player of choice overcast, I think most major podcast players have this feature where you can put images in the episode. And so if you look at your screen right now, we'll change the artwork of the show from the main artwork to, uh, you know, at the different versions of the image as it was, as, as we worked through the, the design process. Um, and you can sort of watch it build as we talk about it. And that'll continue actually for the rest of the show. And, and we'll put, you know, along with the show notes and links, we also have images of sort of what we're talking about throughout the show, which is kind of fun. Uh, so if you're not looking at your screen, you know, it might be worth a glance unless you're driving. Don't do that. Yeah. That's, that's a bad eyes on the road eyes. Yep. <laughs> I was going to say that, uh, you know, that kind of technology, I, I describe that as sufficiently advanced technology. It's, <laughs> It's like it's magic, <laughs> <clears throat> which is exactly where we want to start when we talk about our, our podcast artwork, which came from uh, the name of our podcast, Insufficiently Advanced. We explained it on episode zero, but it, we, we knew that it was going to be a techno- uh, podcast about technology, but we want it to stand out. None of us had a real clear idea going into this, what we wanted, so... I think I threw out something like, what if we took a look at something like Transistor, um, which is a video game that's kind of techy, has some fun colors. And that's really where we started. So our first version, it's very me in terms of its thin lines. It's perfection. (laughs) It's glows. I I mean, it's certainly not perfection. (laughs) Um but it, it and it's very subtle um in terms of what it's trying to convey and i think you guys had good feedback on that regard in that you like the colors as you can probably see comparing it to the final version the green border still there we you know we ended up just bulking it up and the background um gradient is very similar so we we kind of use that as a base and <clears throat> After messing around with a few versions of that with, with some different text. We got to talk um, about the map. Oh, the map. Yeah. Yeah. So the, <clears throat> the background is, is there's a map there, which if you are Apple fans like we are, you may recognize that as their new spaceship campus. 
in uh over in california um and the surrounding kind of the surrounding neighborhood um but it's very that's very subtle and maybe not as technology as obviously it's not as obvious that that has to do with technology i think just uh one of the reasons i wanted to get get away a little way from the map was just because we're not going to be focused on apple like right. we we will be focused on it because we're all fans of apple but i think we're going to talk about uh, other stuff just as much and i didn't want to focus on oh it's an apple fanboy mm-hmm. podcast so yeah for sure and with the uh the green lines that you put in uh one of the things you said when we were talking about it before was that you wanted to sort of convey us like try to bring some sense of motion into the frame so that it wasn't just like a purely static image um we'll get i'll get back to that later uh mm-hmm. but uh it is an element that you pointed out that i was trying to find a way to keep uh in in future versions yeah and i, I appreciate i appreciate that you know kind of what we ended up with because i think especially in this early version there's kind of the the spaceship circle thing up at the top but it that doesn't that doesn't move it doesn't draw it, it draws your eye but your eye doesn't nat- wouldn't naturally necessarily feel like it needs to move around the artwork and that's what those those green lines were for was to bring your eye down to the title so then we played around a little bit with upping the the font size messing with fonts i said bigger type and you made it much larger <laughs> <laughs> to be fair i think it's i think our final version is even larger than that i, I believe it is yes <laughs> and then and then you michael kind of set the groundwork not necessarily with the, the the perfect use of the font but it definitely feels like we're starting to head towards the final product with what you came up with next uh, I, it, it started out as just a typography test like what if i just take this I'm going to build some type and I'm just going to put the type on top of what Brett made. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I kept making the type larger because I wanted it to be legible and, you know, even like on a small screen or, you know, in a search result, I want it to be obvious that, that, you know, it, you can read the title on the artwork nice and clear. Uh, so I kept making it bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it started getting in the way of stuff. Um, but yeah, we have the, like the, sort of handwritten version of, of insufficiently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have like the mixed typography and I have, I don't know that this weird arc I'm looking at it now. I'm just like, wow, what was I thinking in the moment? <laughs> but that's sort of how all design processes go. Absolutely. That is absolutely just part of the design process. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just started playing with these, the type and uh, ended up the, the slanted, text that was, that was that was sort of the um the motion element right mm-hmm. things are going somewhere you know they're headed off the frame forward you, it feels like it's not just sitting there and i also thought thought the getting getting rid of the lines in the logo actually made it so the background also carries your eye through the image yeah whereas before it just kind of blended in because there was so much going on right as as especially um people from the western hemisphere we read left to right and top to bottom so having that gradient start really bright in the top left and 
pulled us down to the type that's further down, um, that feels very natural. Yeah. Yep. We're we're definitely not at all graphic designers here. Um, none of us have yeah. that job. No. <laughs> yep. Definitely none of us. <laughs> and we definitely didn't go to school for it. Mm-mm. I played with so many different versions of the gradient. I thought, okay, I like where Brett's gone with this, but what if I just try something else? And so I was just like, I was dragging gradients left, right, up, down, like, you know, radial gradients, linear gradients, like just trying all different shapes. <laughs> Ended up basically exactly back where Brett had started <laughs> with. It's like, now this, this is the one that works. And I think you're right. It's that we read left to right, yeah. uh, top to bottom. And in that flow of the, the bright orange corner, catches your eye and and sort of pulls you across uh with with the type mm-hmm. um but yeah i definitely tried to, to challenge it and i, I couldn't break it so I, I like that i did something right i did something <laughs> right guys Woo-hoo. and you picked that green i love that green yeah it's a good green it looks fantastic and the the tra- so uh transistor we'll have a link to it in the show notes if you haven't played uh transistor is fantastic um and has a beautiful uh very cohesive art style. I don't even know how to describe it, um, but it's full of vibrant colors and uh, does a really good job of setting it scene and or sort of building the environment with with color and shape. Kind of the way I'd describe it is it's almost um, Disney cyberpunk. It's like, what if Disney made a cyberpunk? I like that. I like that too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. So that was definitely inspiration for uh, where we started with this. And when Brett mentioned it and then I saw what he had put together, I thought, oh, yeah, definitely. So none of us are none of us are talented enough artists to actually replicate that style. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we can at least aim for the look. Yeah. And we also wanted to do our own thing, too. You know? Oh, for but, sure. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so, yeah. So the next phase, uh, I, I had liked the... Um, monospaced font from the original design that you had done. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, what if I scrap the handwritten look for the word insufficiently and build this all together as a monospace font? And I used, um, there's, it's a new programming font that actually just came out. It's called uh, JetBrains Mono Company, JetBrains. They make like uh, IDEs for various, I think mostly web programming languages. And um, they had, developed this new font it looks pretty nice and i've been playing with it and i thought well what happens if i like just build something with it and uh so that's that's the next version that you see here uh, which is we're getting closer um but i i used the monospace font and then i couldn't figure out how to make the the green circles and lines fit into the design but i went back and i put the the mothership icon with the yeah i call it the crying usb it's like <laughs> uh with like the crying usb lines coming off of it i put that back in i tried a few different ways i i tried adding uh circuit boards to the background we had talked mm-hmm. about playing with that um and you guys definitely so there was one version of a circuit board that was very dense and uh and then there was the second one which is the one we actually ended up going with uh where it's um uh, more symmetric but it also has better flow just in terms of yeah the, where, where the lines are going it's symmetrical and again when we're talking about like how it, if you're looking up in the top left because of the gradient you have lines going from that directly to the middle that just draw your eye 
really, really nicely. So, and, uh, and then with that, I also, I rounded the inner corners of the, of the, mm-hmm. uh, of the frame just to see sort of how that, how that looked rather than having the hard, sharp edges that we'd had before. Neither of you complained about it or mentioned anything about it. So I just left it. <laughs> yeah. It gives the corners just a little more oomph. And then, uh, Brett, you, you said you liked the background, but you, th- but you thought we should change up the graphic. Yeah. At this point, the gra- the, the spaceship graphic just does, doesn't really fit in there anymore. So it's, you know, I love that icon, but it doesn't fit. And if it doesn't fit, it has to go. Yep. Yeah. In, in, in hindsight, it was totally just like trying to just shove it into a space that it did, didn't belong in. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's one thing that's always like painful about doing graphic design is you come up with really cool designs and then you're, and then you, you're like, oh, I, you just want to put it in, but it just doesn't fit. So you got to get rid of it no matter how good it is. Yeah. So then the next design thought I, so I, deleted the uh the the icon i figured okay brett's gonna come up with some new illustrative thing to put on the frame um but for now i'm just gonna dork around with the text and so i kept playing with the text playing with the text and um as you can see in this next one uh we're getting a lot closer to sort of where we landed at least for now i had the idea that we could we could make the text uh float above the frame it wasn't it wasn't just contained inside the nice beautiful green frame that we'd put together but the text can sort of expand past it and it it gives the design some layering um Mm -hmm. and some complexity that wasn't there before yeah pushing pushing out of the frame is a very popular trend right now so i think it looks it's very trendy but i think it it's not just trendy i think it works well the trick is not doing it too much um, right. At least for now, you know, maybe in here we'll look at it and say, oh, we're going to do something else. It must be flat. You're well, thi- it, it, I'm guessing you were thinking of the word contemporary. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of those things where, you know, we're coming back out of a very, very flat uh, design phase. Um, mm-hmm. And so adding dimension and shadow back into things is, you know, sort of the natural progression as we as the pendulum swings back the other direction. Yep. So then, yeah, so now we're getting a lot closer to the final the final look here. I switched over to a different typeface and had some pretty good success with it. It's uh, Gotham by uh, Hofler & Co. It's a font that is used a lot. <laughs> uh, you see it everywhere. It's very popular right now. But it, for a reason, it's, it is, it's gorgeous. It's very legible. It looks good at lots of different sizes and weights. Mm-hmm. And... You know, you typeset something in it, and then you build other alternative versions. And I just kept going back to the Gotham version. It just it just looks so good. And this is the first one where I added a little tagline. And I this was a fun little process coming up with what, what the tagline would be. And <clears throat> I was playing around and said, any insufficiently advanced technology is absolutely not magic. <laughs> Which in hindsight seems so ridiculously verbose, but <laughs> it's clever. And, 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 uh, and yeah, I think you're right. Like it, I like that idea and where we ended up at is the perfect marriage of being clever and staying true to who we are, but also being legible and making the design accessible. Yeah. Which, which yeah. I think that was my own, pretty much my only 
actual input aside from just saying that looks good or I don't like that. <laughs> well, you also told me to use a wider font. Uh, oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. Which we did. Yeah, so I switched fonts for the the subtitle uh, and I played with the text a little bit more. One version I changed the word um, absolutely to certainly. So it was certainly not magic. But then, Timothy, you had the brilliant idea. Yeah. I mean, really, you, you want to get to the most succinct point you can. So instead of a big, long, verbose thing, I suddenly was like, wait, the whole point is it's not magic. So let's make that the tagline. With a period. I like the period. With a yeah. period. The punctuation is nice. So, yeah, played around a little bit more, uh, you know, nudged things here, changed the, you know, tightened the kerning there. And that's how we ended up with what you're looking at right now and what appears in the store are the search results. And I'm pretty happy with it. I, this, it was definitely a process and it, and if you see the flow of like where we started to where we ended, it makes sense, but we definitely ended up like some, some elements are basically exactly the same and other elements are very different. It's interesting because every time I've ever looked at a graphic design project I've worked on, even, even in like kind of sidelines, like I would did on this one, it's always the same as it starts pretty complicated and a very like overthought design and then the more you work with it it doesn't get more complicated it always gets more and more simplified till you get the same theme without being overly complicated which is exactly what happened here yeah that's the process uh lengthy description of the evolution of our artwork so uh someone might find that interesting i, I hope so i do hope so <laughs> well I, I found it interesting i i really enjoyed the process uh going through it with you guys and um i felt a little bad about like i just sort of took the reins and just ran with it <laughs> <laughs> um you guys seem to be on board so nothing wrong with that it's 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 a team team effort so well i haven't i haven't paid for an adobe product in uh <laughs> i don't know how many years 10 years so i i'd let you run with it yeah yeah um but one of the funny things, and this sort of will blend in the, into the next topic, is the, that beautiful bright green color. Um, Timothy, <laughs> you were looking at it on a different monitor. Yeah. Mm. And you didn't like it. It just didn't look as good. Which, And, and I knew exactly what was happening. I, I wasn't under any, uh, <laughs> any false impression. But I was like, oh, is this going to not look as good if you don't have a good display? Because, I mean... Say anyone that doesn't like Apple, you can say all you want about them, but their screens are really nice. They look mm -hmm. really good, and uh, which is something I've always been impressed with. And then, so then I went to work, and I was on a Windows computer with just you know a very run of the mill monitor because I just work in tech support, and it just did not look anywhere near as good as it did on uh, on my laptop at home. So I, I mentioned that oh, can we play around with it, see if we can make it look a little little bit better on all monitors but and I i'm said, really happy with that looks i said no <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> no this, this green is perfect it's gorgeous <laughs> uh yeah but this this sort of gets us into the next topic here which is color on your computer the world of calibration and wide gamut color hdr uh the the field is getting more and more complicated and mm -hmm. it was messy and um, complicated to begin with. And it's only getting worse. Yeah. I ran into this the other day, and this is why I wanted to put this subject in the show. 
Um, I have a friend who a couple of years ago, I did some headshots for him, uh, some photography work, and he sent out a newsletter uh, this last week. And in the newsletter, he uh, one of the things he was talking about was like uh, sort of his look over the years. He is a musician um, and and how like his look was sort of following like his style and his development of his music. And so it was pertinent to the subject, you know, the subject matter, but, um, in it, he had one of the photos that I had taken, uh, which I was like, Oh, cool. And then I noticed that it looked like crap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like it was, it, the photo was too dark, um, and kind of orangish almost like it was like the wrong, uh, white balance. And mm. I was, I was looking at the photo and thinking, what was up? Like, why did that photo look that bad? And so I went back to the source material and looked at it and it looks gorgeous on my screen. Um, and I'm scratching my head and trying to figure it out. And it, it dawned on me that, um, when I had mastered and, you know, exported the photograph, um, I had done so with um, a wide gamut color profile. And we can get into this a little bit more in a second. Um, but basically, if you have your standard, you know, RGB colors where 0 to 255 represent the values that you have for red, green, and blue, you know, 8 bits per channel of color, you end up with a 24-bit color image. There are many different ways to interpret those colors. And if one screen is brighter than another screen or is able to produce more colors than a different screen, you know, if, you know, 255 red looks one way on one screen and looks a different way on a different screen, um, it makes it difficult to show things um, on, on computer screens that have any sort of color accuracy. And so, you know, you go shopping online for clothes or, uh, you know, you're, you're looking for something on Amazon and there are a couple different shades of colors. And if, if you're getting wildly different results than what somebody else sees, then, uh, that's a problem. Well, and, and I, and honestly, if, if anybody that's listening wants to see this in a very simple way on their own, just go to your TV and mess with the temperature settings, because those are all like interpretations of a color space. And none of them is necessarily more correct than another, unless you're talking about compared to the real world. You know, they one of them is definitely more accurate, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And the yeah. thing, and the thing that's interesting about this is exactly what you're talking about: is some of its preference and some of its accuracy. And there's a whole complicated conversation you could have about it. But yeah, sorry to interrupt you. No, no, that's, that's great. That's a good point. Um, yeah, so I had realized that I, when I had made this photograph and I had exported it out of my image editor, I had exported it with a wide color gamut um, color profile, Adobe RGB. And when you're editing photographs, uh, you want to have sort of the largest color working space possible because, as it turns out, 24 bits of color, uh, 8 bits per channel, isn't enough. And... Um, <laughs> you can if you're editing photos and adjusting colors you can run into problems where you bump up against um maximum color values mm -hmm. and you need to be able to describe more advanced colors it's hard to describe without seeing it i've worked up some uh chapter artwork that will show the difference between like an adobe rgb and uh what is sort of the normal web color profile srgb 
the the photograph uh, had ha- was tagged with a wide color gamut. And as long as you opened the photograph in software that knew what to do and how to interpret a color profile, which basically just says, here's the color space that this photograph, like all this, all this picture data that we're describing, it fits within this specific profile. And if you map it this way, it's going to look great. Um, but what happens is not all tools know what to do with color profiles especially on the web. If you, you know, if you take a photograph and you upload it to your WordPress, you know, website, and it uses a command line image editing system that hasn't been properly compiled to or configured to handle color profiles. um, What happens is that profile gets ignored and the color information gets interpreted incorrectly. And so that's exactly what happened here um, with my buddy's photo. And he had this photo, had a large color profile or a wide gamut color profile that got stripped out when he, whatever he was doing his image editing at some point. And when he exported it out and sent it with the email, um, the wrong color information was, was interpreted and the color on the photo looks terrible. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I saw that and went, Oh my gosh, this is, this is awful. I had to go figure out what it was. Um, but really what this comes down to is color is very important and it is, we are still so very far away from having really good color management systems in our computers. Um, I think, you know, Mac OS is far and above the best system on the desktop for, for handling anything color related. Oh uh, yeah. Um, you know, Apple developed, they have color sync technology, which is, um, specifically designed to deal with this problem of how do you describe a color and then output the color so that the viewer sees a consistent representation on all different devices. Uh, and so color sync is very, very mature technology. It's, part of the very foundation of Mac OS and its graphic systems. Yeah. So color sync is, is in the very foundation of Mac OS. And nowadays I think all of Apple's displays, there maybe one of the smaller iPads doesn't. Um, but mm. I think most of the displays that Apple is shipping these days support a very wide range of colors. Um, they, you know, they call it it's display P3 or DCI P3 which is what the uh, Digital Cinema Initiative, which is basically a consortium of people who make imagery for a living and, you know, large companies, and they want to have a consistent system for mastering and displaying things like, you know, movies. Um, Yeah. And so all of the Apple devices support this, like, very large color gamut, and the screens can output these gorgeous colors. And... uh, if your images aren't tagged properly or um, you, you know, if when you're editing your images, you misinterpret how that should be tagged, it can throw the colors all out of whack and you end up with, you know, horribly vibrant colors, which is, I, I was a major problem on Android phones until shockingly recently. It was just in the last few years that the Android operating system got proper color management um, because a lot of phones, we're shipping with these great OLED displays that could show a lot of colors and had beautiful deep blacks, but they were 
displaying, they were interpreting all images as, as though they were this baseline. Um, it's the sRGB profile from the late nineties. And because of that, they were misinterpreting all the colors and everything was getting just blown out and horribly oversaturated and didn't look good at all, which is not good for user experience. Um, right. Well, and, and even we even experience it pretty regularly, even in like non work or graphic graphic related stuff with, uh, our recordings from Xbox. Mm-hmm. Cause we play on HDR compatible displays and so when we record something and then we sh- or even take a screenshot and share it in our chat, it looks terrible because they don't do anything to interpret any of the HDR information. Well, so they they've changed that, actually. So uh, if you take a screenshot, you still get uh, you get two versions of the screenshot. Um, you get a regular JPEG or maybe it's a ping. Um, it's like, you know, a 4K large ping in a regular sRGB color space that they've sort of interpreted and dumped out. And it used to be that the interpretation wasn't very good. And I think uh, the Xbox team has done a pretty good job now of figuring that out. But you also get a, I think it's JPEG 2000 (laughs) or no. uh, Yeah. I think that's what it is. Like some, I had to install um, a, uh, a format so that I could open it. (laughs) <laughs> that's interesting you'll have to show that to me because i don't think i have two versions of any of my screenshot oh it's, it's it's jpeg xr that's what it's called that version on a normal computer screen that isn't hdr and if you're not using color profile management to to interpret it properly it looks all washed out and horrible but that's because it's a 10 bit right um you know 4k image that is describing a high dynamic range color space, which if you open it up on an HDR display, it's going to look fantastic. But yeah, like there's this, this whole new world of you, uh, you know, ultra high definition 4k and HDR is blossoming. And so many people, there are so many displays that can't handle that, um, that it's very common to see online, you know, people complaining about, you know, I tried playing this video or like looking at this image file and it's just, like it's all washed out and wrong. And how, what do I do about this? It's a complicated problem. It's, it's one of those examples where the innovation gets ahead of the tech because all, all the devices support it, but they haven't done all the programming to facilitate it yet. Yeah. And, and so often companies, what they really care about is sticking that X number of pixels here's you know this is a 4k tv and they and they they don't particularly care about what kind of color profiles are going into it right um because because the average consumer they're just gonna have it on auto and that's gonna be good enough for them but the the with a frustrating thing for someone like me who does who works in video and graphics every day is that there's just no consistency device to device because the standards haven't been, I mean, there are standards there, but they're from the nineties and you know, what we need is we need a modern set of rules going forward for displays and innovate where you can, but respect the fact that 
consumers shouldn't have to worry about uh, the color spaces if they don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, a big part of the problem, which is the problem with all co- this kind of stuff, and we even talked about it with USB last week, is standards are like always supported by a company or an organization because it'd be awesome if if TVs, you know, could license color sync technology and every TV you watched on used to the same color profiles. So then every screen you looked at would look about the same because then it would be there wouldn't be this weird difference where you're looking at a monitor compared to your TV or your phone compared to your monitor and they all look different they'd all look pretty similar, but, uh, you know, they're, they're all supported by different companies and those companies don't want to go to another company to get that support added or another organization. So fortunately there is a solution to the problem you just mentioned, uh, coming up for, and it's specifically for TVs. It's called a uh, filmmaker mode. Yes. And this is very exciting. I am. This is very exciting. I am pumped to see this uh, actually happen. And I really, really hope it goes across the entire industry, but it's basically a um, industry set. And this is, this is sort of designed by the people who make films and and movies. Um, But it's a way to make sure that if a television goes into filmmaker mode, that, you know, you, you pop a Blu-ray in, to your your player and you hit go the tv is going to have the proper refresh rate you know 24 mm-hmm. fps not 60 fps interpolated or you Ugh. know yeah or, or motion smoothing right <laughs> oh. uh yeah so make sure that the, the frame rate is correct um the color settings are correct so mm-hmm. so there'll be like a pre-calibrated um and known profile that the tv can switch to where it's going to be like in cinema mode. Yeah, so it'll have uh, frame rate, color, and uh, aspect ratio so that you're not getting any weird accidental cropping or stretching of the image. And the idea is that it happens behind the scenes and the user doesn't have to worry about it. They just hit play and the TV does the right thing and everybody gets a consistent viewing experience. Very excited about this. Hallelujah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that'd, that'd be awesome yeah if it if it actually works out it'll, it'll be awesome yeah. yeah yeah definitely um this is all to say that it's a very complicated problem uh i run into this all the time most of my work um even though i do graphic arts uh the industry that i'm in i end up having to use windows most of most of the day and windows really really lacks a solid foundation for doing color management there are tools to sort of set a profile for your display, but application support for handling those profiles is very bad. Uh, and you get very wildly different results depending on what you feed into, you know, various programs. Well, when I, I will say even to de- just to defend windows a little bit, not, not a ton, but a tiny bit, this will be good. That it's, but it's also the the monitors. Like I've owned a lot of monitors. I've probably owned three dozen monitors in the time that I've been buying monitors, and hooked every one of them up to an Apple computer. And some of them look great without even like playing with the settings, and some of them look terrible. And it's and and it's not even that the monitors are bad. It's that their software or their firmware doesn't communicate well with the OS, and it's kind of a pain. So 
it's it's such a complicated world especially in windows because you're always using a third-party monitor when you're on mm. windows so there's yeah you're never gonna have like this oh hey this is a microsoft monitor so i'm gonna get the colors set perfectly well yeah microsoft surface uh you know yeah yeah <laughs> which have very good displays uh they do i was gonna say they probably are the best looking displays of the bunch and that's because they can be controlled at the production level right yeah but that still doesn't do anything for you know you have um you know an image editing software right. that doesn't know how to handle it or uh, you need to, need to do something with 3d graphics right you know, right you, you start rendering mm-hmm. in 3d uh all of a sudden you know all of the color um the the monitor profile stuff goes out the window that's a whole different subsystem right and um yeah it's just kind of a mess and the inconsistencies are annoying i you know and you figure out how to work around them and you learn to see the problems when they arise and so you can fix them but it is something that i find myself having to deal with more often than i would like to yep uh, so yeah, as, as we go into this world of, you know, wider gamut and HDR and all the versions of that. Yeah. And all the versions of that, I just, I hope that there's going to be a sort of functional through line from where we are to where we want to go and end up with a system where everybody can have, can experience these like great new technologies and not have to wrestle with it. Yeah, for sure. So that's all I really have to say on that. There are a couple of resources I'm going to put in the show notes. Um, There's a a really great write-up by Craig Hockenberry from the Icon Factory. Love the Icon Factory. Good folks. Um, But Craig did a write-up on uh, color management back in 2016. And he called it Looking at the Future. And it is a really nice deep dive of the tech that we've just been talking about. And uh, if you're at all interested in this material, definitely check this article out because um, he's got some really great information and uh, advice in there. And if you're into movies and cinema and you want to learn a little bit more about color in that regard, I haven't read Craig's article, so he might touch on some of that too. But Steve Yeldon over on Twitter, he's a DP he is immensely knowledgeable and he tweets out things all the time. Um, so rec- I recommend uh, him as well. Um, yeah. And Brett, you know, I think your experience with this is, is uniquely different from both Timothy and I, and that you do mostly video production. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious what, uh, you know, your, your take is uh, from that angle. Um, you know, what we do, what I do primarily day to day, I try and do a lot behind the scenes to make it so that people don't have to worry about things. I do I do a lot to just to provide for the lowest common denominator. In a similar way to what you're talking about with working, you know, you, maybe you're on an iMac, like, but you're running Windows or you have a third-party monitor, I build, I make all of my stuff on my iMac at work, and then it goes to be reviewed by one person who also has a Mac, and then two other people who have PCs. And theirs aren't—they're not calibrated in any specific way. I'm sure it's just out of the box. 
And so it, it can be immensely frustrating to, you know, get some feedback like, oh, like that green or that blue doesn't really feel like it's in our, uh, like, doesn't feel right for the brand. Well, they're probably right. I mean, and it's not like either one is wrong. It's subjective because what you're interpreting, what your brain is interpreting is still accurate. It's just that because there's no consistency, you just have to play to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. Well, and and it just makes me think of, I I have a friend from college that she she couldn't tell the difference between 480 and 1080. Like we literally like showed two pictures next to each other. That's amazing. And she's like, I can't, I can't tell the difference. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it's funny to me because nowadays I don't, I don't think that'd probably be true. I think because people have dealt with it enough, they'd go, this looks fuzzy. But, uh, I think that's the same with all this technology is at the moment we're, we're kind of at the forefront either because we follow the stuff or it's important for our jobs. But, as it becomes more and more common, people are going to notice, even if they don't know what it is, they're going to go, this color, this this image looks washed out mm-hmm. uh, more and more as they, as we see it more. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. So, yeah, uh, we got a few other links in here. There's some uh, really good videos that I found on YouTube uh, while just sort of researching this. And there's a, a video um, from Flurn where they... Do color spaces explained? It's a great, I think, about ten minute video. Um, if you're at all curious, definitely check that out. And then uh, Apple has a WWDC session um, that's getting started with Display P3, and this is from back when um, I think they only had a couple devices that supported expanded color gamuts, and they were describing what the problem is. And um, that's a worthwhile view too so oh, we'll, we'll put links for all, for all that in there so i think the next topic is media and tech that we are excited about for this next year Ooh, it's a lot yeah and i think timothy uh this was your your topic there right? yeah i and I, I i added a few points but uh you know if you think of anything mention it but uh i know i know one that's i kind of Put put one on our list that I I think just needs to be talked about just because it's a big thing going on right now, which is folding displays or even like uh, dual displayed devices, um, like the ra- the new Razer phone, which sounds really funny to say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it does. <laughs> Who would have thought? And uh, the Microsoft Duo and Neo, um, and I think the Samsung's just called the Fold. I think it's called Fold. And it's something that uh, I'm I'm pretty interested in because it is something that seems like like technology that you'd see in sci-fi that's finally becoming kind of a reality. And I don't think that this year most of us are going to buy a folding phone, but it's something that I think in maybe 10 years we might all have a folding phone or a folding device. And so I don't know. What, do you, what are your guys' thoughts on the devices you've seen or have, have you even seen any of them? Yeah, I've I've paid pretty close attention. Um I, you know, last year we got to see Samsung with their first attempt which the problem wasn't as much in the glass itself, but in some of the mechanisms behind how it folded. 
and now with Razer and Microsoft, you know, investing in it, um, Huani, the Chinese company, Huawei, Huawei, uh, they, uh, you know, there's lots of companies doing it, which means that it's the technology is here. Um, how durable it is over time, in that makes me worried. I won't be running out and buying one right away. Right. Um, but I'm like, like the duo is really interesting to me. Just that idea of, I don't want my, my current phone to be smaller necessarily, but if I can make something that's, Oh, I'm sorry if my cat wandered in here. Look, he has a lot to say about folding displays. The pod cat has invaded here. Let's see if he'll sit in my lap. But like if I can replace my phone and tablet and have that in one device. Yeah. That's more interesting to me first, you know, in five years. And, and, and I can't remember what science fiction show it was. But a, like the thing that made me first interested in even the idea was they somebody had like a phone size device. And then when they needed to do something extensive, they folded it out to like a full mm-hmm. tablet size. And to me, that's like the coolest idea. And and I even think about it now that like I love my iPhone 11 Pro Max. And but it's reaching the limit of how big I want my phone. Like if, right. if Apple next year, this next year was like, we're making the iPhone 12 bigger. I'd be like, I'm not getting that. Like that's it has reached the limit of what I want. But but if they instead were like, oh, hey, we came out with this phone that's the same size as the max and then it folds out to a device that's twice the size i'd be very interested just in the concept alone Mm -hmm. so it's very interesting i i've not been paying a whole lot of attention to the foldable tech mostly because i don't see a use case where it's something that i want um (laughs) and i maybe it's part maybe part of it is that i am getting hung up on where the technology is right now versus where it could be going yeah but yeah as of as of right now i just have absolutely no desire to have a folding phone i like the little you know slab of glass uh that i can just pick up and that has my screen and it's a gorgeous screen and it does what i need it to do um well i'm I'm guessing then you haven't looked at microsoft's then i Hang on. Right now, Microsoft. <laughs> I specifically put them on the list because Razer and Fold. Oh, this is not the one I was thinking of. Yeah, Razer and Fold are very interesting concepts. But like I said, I don't expect those to be a thing for quite a while. I think it's going to take several iterations before it's something that you want in your everyday life. But the Microsoft Duo and Neo are really interesting because it's the first time that it's like, oh, hey, they're actually going to make a two-display device that you have it folded and you can use it like your regular phone and then you unfold it and you get more screen real estate, which I think is a great idea. Um, The question is going to be whether or not it's going to have other limitations as a result because any device that's done something similar in the past, it's been a compromise, so... Yeah, I'm I'm having a hard time seeing the Microsoft uh, Neo l- look much like anything other than a really tiny touchpad uh, MacBook. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I'm 
I'm not sold yet. Uh, it's, but it's one of these things where companies are going to play with this and play with this and play with this. And eventually, uh, you know, if there is a viable use case for the technology, um, you know, someone's going to make it big and everyone's going to go that direction. Yeah. But I, I think right now we're still in the, uh, you know, very early phases of trying to just explore what, what a dual screen or foldable screen system looks like. Yep. Well, and, and, and Apple, I think is going to take a lot, a long time before they come out with it. They made some patents, but they haven't, they haven't even hinted that they're doing anything else. So I was going to say, it's going to take, it's going to take someone like Apple to come in and say, yeah, we've seen these out there and they're interesting, but here's how you do it right. And come out with UI and, you know, touch controls that make sense that give you new functionality and utilities with it. That's what's going to push it mainstream. Right. Yeah. There needs to be a, like you said, there needs to be a use case. Um, and an obvious improvement over the current model, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You have to have people interested in in the new technology. I, I think, you know, it, where we are right now with, you know, the ridiculously expensive Motorola Razor uh, that apparently is having all sorts of problems. Um, and it, it is <laughs> underpowered. Yeah, very underpowered. The, uh, you know, where we are with that is, that is if somebody wants to have a conversation starter device in their pocket and they're willing to put up with all of the problems that are going to come with it. Um, then, you know, that's who's going to, that, that's who that phone is for. Well, and I will, I will say though, the, the thing I've actually been impressed with is despite the problems, most of the people that have been using the folding phones have said they are really cool to use. Like they are very usable and it makes it so, you can get a bigger device than you would get in a regular phone without taking up more room in your pocket, which is the whole idea. But are we still at the point though, where it's like a self, uh, self-selecting group of people who like the people who have those devices are the ones who are going to like them anyway. Like if you just went out on the street and did a test and just ask random people like to interact with the device and what they thought about it. Well, but these are the, if you read those same things, they're not saying, these are these are like totally worth the money. In fact, they usually say the opposite. But they're they're basically saying it is really cool to use. But no, the the Motorola Razor is not worth fifteen hundred bucks. So, so I think we're we are in that in that phase that you're talking about. That it's only the people that want something that looks cool or is the forefront of innovation. But I think that the fact that there's not people going, well, that like who cares? It's not even that good. There's, there's nobody really saying that. I think this is going to be something that in 10 years or five years or whatever, who knows how fast this stuff's going to happen, we're going to see a lot more people using folding phones. So, You know, I'm maybe even more interested in, in just bendable glass and bendable displays and seeing where we get with that in terms of like wearables. Yeah. Mm. You know, what does, a, what does an Apple Watch look like in five years with flexible glass? That's that's maybe more interesting for me as as I'm someone who because I spend so much of my day interacting with technology already, like I like the fact that for most of my day all I have to really interact with uh, personally is my watch. I right. can glance at it. I don't have to pull out my phone. I don't have to flip it open. 
Um, I can do a lot of that from, from there or even my computer just because of how, you know, the ecosystem and how everything is tied together with iCloud and handoff and all those things. Well, and, and for me, even an interesting part of it that I haven't seen anybody talk about is what about monitors? Like, uh, I I'm looking right now at my 32 inch 4k monitor. If you folded that in half, uh, horizontally, that would fit my backpack. That'd be cool. And, and otherwise it's a very unwieldy monitor to take anywhere. <laughs> so that's, that's another inch area I've been interested in is being able to take large electronics more places. So I like that a lot better that I feel like that would fit my use case, uh, right. More consistently. But, um, yeah, I think, I think we, you know, solve it on the small scale and it'll, it'll grow bigger. Yeah. It's not there yet. But like, are we looking at, uh, is most of this stuff, we have products coming out now. Is there sort of an, a second generation that's on the horizon that, that people have been talking about? Uh, I don't think so. Cause they're, these are all brand new, like, uh, the razor and the fold came out what in the last two months. Yeah. If, if that, so I, I don't think any of those companies are talking about the next gen version. I mean, re- honestly, probably duo and Neo are the next gen version. Right. Cause Microsoft, they're not out yet. They, they came out and they were like, we're going to do something unusual. We're going to talk about products that are three years out. And that was what they were talking about. I'm sure we'll hear more over the uh, course of the year. Yeah. So I'd be curious to see, to see where this stuff goes. Um, as far as, uh, Apple slash iPhone rumor mill stuff, um, we've got the next iPhone, you know, now now they're sort of locked into this every year. They've got to come up with a new model of the iPhone, uh, and iPad, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, right. <laughs> which is kind of crazy and considering oh. how considering how um how long it takes to design and and then finalize and then build a production pipeline to make millions of devices the way that apple does it's just mind-blowing um but they you know we're talking about 5g networking um mm-hmm. that's kind of uh kind of a big deal i don't know how it's going to affect most people i I think 5g deployment is still very limited right like we're talking major cities and it's going to go really slow because of its limited range Mm -hmm. yeah uh so you know they may have and, and frankly i have you know lte on my phone and it is very fast uh you know hundreds of megabits a second um i think not right here at my house because I have terrible service at my house, but <laughs> you know, if I get out into the city anywhere, uh, LTE seems to be more than plenty. Um, but 5g gives us better speeds and better network congestion. Uh, right. Is that correct? I, I don't know what else. Is there another, like, is it lower power or anything? Uh, re- well, really, I think the reason, so I don't, I haven't heard a lot of people that are excited about it. It's mostly, I think, the companies that are really excited about it because they actually see it, and this has around, gone around quite a bit, as an ISP replacement. That it's that, the idea behind it is it's so fast and so reliable that you'd get rid of your home ISP and you'd just have 
mobile internet in your home. That freaks me out. Yeah, that's not happening here. I don't like that. <laughs> and 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 I think they're. I think that's them being super hopeful because I I just like unless they completely change their models, nobody nobody wants a mobile internet service. It's like my my ISP doesn't care how are you. I mean I I have like probably the most generous one you can have Google Fiber, but they don't care about how much I use. I could I could download forty terabytes in one day. And they would not bat an eye. They would. I wouldn't hear from them. I wouldn't get my speed slowed down. Whereas if I'm on mobile, if if I download, I think, I think our limit right now is eight gigs in a month. Then my speed gets slowed <laughs> down to 128 kilobits per second. Yeah. It's like I I don't want to deal with that. And and hey, that's more than double 56k. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, I I totally agree. I think. I'm not that excited about 5G because, first of all, I don't live in a city that's big enough to get it. And then on top of that, I don't really want to deal with them more than I have to. Yeah, it feels mostly like a marketing thing to me right now. Totally. You know, the companies are saying, oh, we got, you know, 5G networks. And it's just, like, you know, the next thing that they're sticking, putting stickers out for. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. And then there was a the whole thing with AT&T. Uh, claiming 5g which was just their like lte deployment that they did with 4g too yeah (laughs) they did the exact same thing (laughs) and they got they got sued both times that's the best part (laughs) and apparently once (laughs) yeah so yeah basically yeah anytime at&t claims something just uh ignore it and wait for the next company to come up with it (laughs) until it says the technology name because mm-hmm. it's like there was 4G, which didn't mean anything. And then there was LTE, and LTE is the one that me- meant something. Until it says, what? what is it, microwave? It's not microwave. It's what's the the 5G technology? I, I don't Do you know. know what I'm talking about? No. It, the, the actual tech has like a name. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to see if I can find it later. But yeah, it's like 5G doesn't mean anything. That's just marketing. It's the actual technology behind it that matters. So until millimeter wave, millimeter wave, until your your phone and your network supports millimeter wave, don't doesn't matter what number it says next to the G on the top of your phone. Yeah. No, my uh, I'm not excited for five G. And in fact, I'll my hot take is that I just think it's similar to what Michael said. It I feel like it's a marketing gimmick and on top of that it's it's working against the consumer in that what we really need are is things like better compression on on data yeah so you have these amazing phones with these amazing screens they want to stream netflix at 4k i don't know why you want to stream netflix on 4k on your phone but whatever like (laughs) That eats up your data, and their solution is we're gonna we're just gonna make the the lanes wider, right? Right. But we're gonna jam so much more traffic down it that it, in the end, it's a wash. Whereas if you invest in technology that reduces the amount of traffic you have, that's better for the consumer. And the problem is we don't have 
that advocate for the consumer right now working on those kinds of things because everything's run by the the comp the you know your Verizons and your AT and T's and your yeah conglomerates. So it, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, I we have T Mobile and something they did a couple of years ago was. Uh, basically exactly what you mentioned with with compression so um they launched i forget the details of this because i opted out of it <laughs> but um they made it so that any any video that you loaded um over the network like to your phone uh would they would compress it they would they would recompress the video live as it was coming to your phone um and then ostensibly like cache it for everybody else who's doing the same, but they would recompress the video into a much smaller footprint and deliver that to you over the network, thus reducing the amount of bandwidth that you're using. And I think most people had no idea, right? Like that's the whole point mm. is if you, if you do right. this uh, and you make the video look really bad, people are going to complain about it. But if you crush it down and you know, you try to get rid of, you know, a bunch of the data that you don't need, but not so much that it's a problem. Uh, I think most people aren't going to notice, yeah, especially when you're looking at it on a small device, you know, uh, video compression isn't as visible when you have a, you know, much smaller video uh, as opposed to a large television. And uh, yeah, so they were, they were recompressing video so that people used less data. And that was a default thing. You had to opt out of it to uh, have them not do it, which I did, but uh, cause I don't use that much video. And when I do, I want to see, you know, the original. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember Apple. Apple was working on improving a new video codec a couple of years ago. I don't know where that ever, if that just went away. I think that's the H two six five, the H E V C. Oh yes. Yes. But they, they've always worked, and H.265 is a big leap forward in video compression. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but uh, I mean, like I think we mentioned it earlier, that it's the technology is just not keeping up with, with all this stuff. It's, you know, they're already starting to support, get devices that support 8K, and the new consoles are going to support 8K, and we haven't even figured out how to properly get people 4K everywhere so <laughs> yeah. it's yeah it's it's gonna be a bigger and bigger mess i think the further further it goes along av av1 is what i was thinking of av1 av1 is a uh is a codec it's an open codec that a number of companies are pledging to invest in yeah i think if i remember right uh and uh, H.265 can either use uh, HEVC or AV1. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Oh, a successor to VP9. Okay. Got it. But yeah, HEVC is really the thing that has really crazy good compression, if I remember right. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And especially if you have um, the way HDR works, uh, you end up with a smaller, much smaller file at larger size that describes a larger brightness and color range, uh, which makes no sense when you, yeah. when you think yeah. about it at first, <laughs> but if you dig into the details, it's pretty impressive uh, codec. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the cool thing is 
yeah the more detail is the more it compresses it yeah yeah 21 i'm actually looking at the wikipedia page 480p it's 52 percent reduction 2160p it's 64 percent reduction it's pretty awesome yep pretty cool yeah uh before we get off of the the phone stuff i the one bit of rumor that i'm actually excited about like really genuinely interested in and i hope this this happens uh is the iphone se2 uh iphone 9 whatever they're calling it in their rumor mill um but people are thinking that it's going to cost uh, 399 400 bucks for you know a successor to the iphone se which was i think by all accounts a very popular phone um yep yeah it was and i know many people who preferred that uh that size of device so if the new one has any similarity similarity to the old one just with you know modern internals uh i think that'll sell like hotcakes i i think i think the rumor is wasn't the se a four inch display and i think the rumor is the se2 would have a 4.7 inch display okay if i so remember right it's a pretty good jump still yeah yeah um yeah i i'd actually be interested in it just because of the price point as much as i love my iphone 11 pro max it's just a it's an expensive phone and it yeah it's kind of past the point where you can just drop a bunch of cash on it all at once unless you save for it all year mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i am generally on the every other year phone upgrade plan and i'm i'm leaning toward every three years now <laughs> Yeah, we've yeah. been we've been on the every three years, and we're gonna see. I I think we'll see if we can hit four this time. <laughs> I, I mean, at that point, you start sort of running into potential battery issues, and yeah, I don't know. The uh, on an infinite timeline, everybody's screen cracks, right? Now, yeah, exactly. We are because of naming conventions. I don't know. I can't remember how long we've had our phones. Um, I have a. 10 and stephanie has an eight plus is that just two years old three two and a half two two and a half yeah so so yeah so we'll i don't know they're both running so well well that's awesome that it's hard for me it's hard for me to see that you know unless we do start having really noticeable battery issues like i don't think i'll i have any desire to upgrade this year I don't have to well, and, and honestly uh, ever since they did that thing where it reduces the battery life a little bit to improve your performance i haven't really noticed any problems before they did that you mean it reduces performance to improve battery life yeah there you go <laughs> to improve battery life. yeah sorry um before that i noticed the exact thing they were trying to fix which was your phone would just randomly crash the older it got my guess is that i will probably opt for a cheaper phone the next time yeah just because like it's hard like i don't i haven't i don't feel like i can justify a thousand dollar i mean i bought a my 10 was a thousand dollars when it came out and i love it but for what i use it for i don't know do i really need to be spending that yeah probably not yeah, they, they they sort of slowly crept up and became more and more expensive, and then it was the pain point, and then it's like past the pain point now. Yeah. Well, and that's why I think the timing on the SE2 makes a lot of sense is because I saw a lot more people saying, 
oh, they're just so expensive now. So I'm guessing Apple's doing this as a response to that. Yeah. And I appreciate that they're, they are really pushing the envelope where mobile mobile technology is right. Like the processors and the subsystems and the sensors that they have in the modern, you know, top of the line iPhones are just unbelievably good. Just, just get ready for all the hate mail because people are going to, Oh no, Apple products suck. What are you talking about? Yeah. (laughs) I I feel like we have a self-selecting audience. (laughs) (laughs) And and I've actually had, I've had the debate with, with uh, friends at work too. I actually don't hate, android phones overall i actually think there's for the everyday experience there's very little difference no matter what smartphone you're using that said i think for the you have to pay the same price point if you want to get a a phone that's as good as an iphone anyway so Mm -hmm. i don't i don't i'd rather pick apple because i know what i'm getting with every single device um but yeah they are totally if if you if you don't believe what we're saying about they're pushing the forefront of processors. Go look up the benchmarks for the latest processors Apple's making compared to the latest Android processors. Probably Snapdragon. The latest Snapdragon is most what most of them use. Mm-hmm. And Apple is just killing, it crushing all the competitors. It's, yeah, it's it's actually like the the first time I've looked at it and going, this is starting to get embarrassing because it's been like four or five years in a row that Apple's just been killing them. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. And we're at the point now where go uh, look at the iPhone benchmarks and then go benchmark your computer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because chances are the iPhone is faster than that too. No, I think when you're talking about um, this year, the rumors with the SE2 and, and the iPhone, and we look at the last top, or maybe not the last, not the last topic, but I think it segues into another topic really well, which is, the coronavirus and how that's going to affect, you know, the rumors are you know, were maybe that these the at least the SE two was going to come out earlier than th- the fall. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking March, right? Was sort of the original. Yeah, yeah, like like here in the spring, is that still doable with with production? Well, and it's interesting too because the I don't as far as I'm aware, no companies come out and said for sure. Uh, that the coronavirus is affecting their shipments. Um, I haven't seen any. Apple just uh, posted um, uh, investor guidance about it. Oh, okay. Okay. But I also know, though, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people familiar with the business not saying officially for companies, but saying even stuff as far out as the new consoles might get delayed or have less at launch than originally planned because of coronavirus. So even if they solve this problem in the next month, there's going to be some repercussions, I think throughout the whole year, which is, which is kind of crazy. And, and actually just not even in shipping uh, PlayStation pulled out of PAX East because, because of coronavirus. So, you know, it's interesting. I think when you talk about the consoles, I th- this is one of those things where Xbox's strategy may actually pay off in a like a weird kind of way microsoft's bottom line xbox's bottom line i don't think is is going to be as affected by shipping fewer units just because of how they've structured their strategy for the next generation whereas sony has always been about boasting those big numbers 
every company wants to boast big numbers. That's yeah. That's not you know unique. But if they have some console exclusives that really truly are for PS5 only, and which we don't know at this at the time of this recording, don't know. At least I don't. They they have a couple, but I don't think any of them are console sellers at the moment. Sure. So that could affect their business. I just think their business will hurt more than say Xbox. Well, and and I mean, I think if if coronavirus really affects it a crazy amount, I definitely think Xbox would probably be hurt less just because they've already said they don't plan on having any games that are exclusive to Xbox Series X for quite a while after launch. There will be exclusives to Xbox as in Xbox One and Xbox Series X, but they're not going to release any that are just for Xbox Series X for the foreseeable future. So, right. So they right. they actually might just make up for it just by the fact that people are still going to be buying games for the Xbox One. Yeah. So Brett, you put in uh, extended reality, uh, VR, virtual reality, AR, augmented reality, MR. I don't I, mixed reality. Uh, oh, so you're gonna have to describe that to me. Extend, extended reality is just kind of that catch that catch word to describe all of those and that technology of interacting with something that's not real. So, so what is a mixed reality? Uh, it's very, it's very um, AR like. I would, I don't know if I can tell you off the top of my head. It's it's VR and AR mixed. Um, so like an example would be, at least this is what I've heard about it. So like we have an experience here where I live in Utah uh, where you can go into an actual physical space, put on a VR headset, and it maps it to the physical space. Mm -hmm. So you are walking through a physical space, and when you f see a wall, you can touch a wall. So it's both VR and AR, and so they call it mixed reality. And we're not talking about a room that looks like a holodeck from Star Trek, right? Like this is like a space with, with furniture and right. So they, they build an actual space. They just don't have to decorate it because you're seeing all of the decorations in the VR headset. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, I, this made the list for me of, of tech that I'm excited for this year, just because with new consoles, I think we're finally going to get to see is, is, is PlayStation doing a, a PSVR 2? What does the future look like there for console gaming? Um, VR on PCs is getting more accessible um, and better than ever. Uh, the Which is the one that doesn't... Is it an Oculus that has... That's just the completely free... Yeah, I have it. Uh, it's the wireless one. Yeah, Oculus Quest. Yeah, the Oculus Quest. I think that's a huge step forward for accessibility to to you know breaking down barriers so people can play it don't feel intimidated by the fact that they've got to have this massive computer with all their cords and whatnot and then you know apple's been pushing augmented reality at its uh wwdc event for the last three years and it looks better every year so i'm really curious to see how that technology what new things that technology is going to do this year um for consumers well and and i think i also think just vr as a as a 
viable commercial platform, I think is going to hit its biggest test this year Mm -hmm. uh, because we have probably the first uh, confirmed system seller in Half-Life Alex. Valve came out with it, even though it supports all headsets, uh, they came out with it specifically to sell their Valve Index, which is their headset with uh controllers that are you can basically use all of your fingers and it recognizes all of your fingers so they and they used it to sell that there then they sold out almost immediately and it's been sold out since then and and if it follows that trend it'll be sold out until the game comes out i believe in march so so it's going to be a test though on whether or not uh, that uh, translates to continued software sales afterwards because Right. Because right now, you know, they proved that they can make a game that makes people want to buy a system. That's the first step. Are those people going to keep buying virtual reality titles and make it yeah. a, a viable success? So, yeah, I'm very interested in it, too. I actually specifically bought an Oculus Quest uh, because of because of how I could use it without a computer or with a computer if I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I bought it specifically so I could buy a play Half-Life Alex. So we'll see. Maybe uh, it's worth uh, spending like its own show segment, but I'd be really curious to hear your your review about the Oculus Quest and sort of your experience with setting it up and and how it plays, uh, how it performs while connected to your gaming machine and when it's running, yeah, you know, in disconnected mode. Uh, I I will say really quick just to just to give like a a quick overview for people that want to know. The, it was surprisingly easy uh, to use. It, so the whole idea behind it is unlike other headsets where you have to put stuff around your room for tracking, the Oculus Quest, everything's built into the headset. So it is a little bit heavier, but it makes it so I, I bought it. I took it out of the box. I put it on. And within uh, about two minutes of doing the original calibration I was using, I was playing a VR game and uh it works really well. You set up a boundary uh, in the space. So no matter how limited of space you have, you can play in it. Obviously, you can't in an experience that requires standing if you're in a closet-sized room. but <laughs> Which um, is where you normally game, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was really, really easy to use. And then I plugged it into a computer. And it, the computer, the Oculus app, immediately recognized it and let me play the entire Oculus library. So... I was very impressed. That's pretty cool. Yeah, my uh, my brief experience with a VR headset was, I don't think it was first generation. I think it might have been like second generation Oculus headset. Um, and it was mostly just kind of a demo thing. I spent, I don't know, probably 45 minutes or an hour at like total playing with it all, across all the different games and demos. Um, but the one that I really was into was uh cyan the company who made mist yeah and riven uh, a couple years ago they had a new game called abduction and it was it's a 3d it's it's very much in the vein of the mist games um and you're you know walking around in space and solving puzzles and there's great ambiance uh, but this was all in 3d and supported vr headsets and uh so i got to play with that and it was really awesome um being able to like see the environment and, and it's hard to describe without actually playing one of these systems, but 
to be in the space and have all those inputs coming into your eyes and your eyes telling your brain, I am here in this space and this is real. And these things are this scale. And this is how the shadows and the textures look, um, is a very different experience. And it was really cool to be in a space that cyan made, you know, cause I've, I've grown up being in, you know, like playing in all of their various games. So, uh, did that. It was really cool. But, um, the default movement system was node based like mist and riven where they'd set up sort of little hotspots around the world that you'd, you'd click to the next one, click to the next one, click to the next one. And I thought, well, what would it be like if I, you know, could move around the world? And so they had a little override switch where you could turn that off and, or turn off the node based movement and go to sort of your, uh, you know, keyboard, you know, WASD or joystick kind of input. Um, I did that <laughs> and after like 10, 15 minutes of it, um, I realized my, my body was like having a panic freak out <laughs> because, because my eyes and effectively my ears, because the game supported, you know, surround sound that was, uh, you know, computed down to stereo, but it sounded like you were in the space. I, I was getting these sensory inputs that did not match what was going on with my body. So I was moving through this space, but there was no gravitational um, pull on me and I had no momentum in my body to match the speed and the things that I was doing in the game world. And I was, I felt ill for like a day. It was so weird. I've never experienced anything like that. Um, it was like the word I don't normally get car sick or motion sick, but holy moly, uh, I, it, it kind of turned me off of the VR thing for, for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little afraid to go back. Well, and, and I think one thing is most games don't support that full wandering like that. Uh, and that's why, and, and, and that's part of it, but it's also just because, okay, so let's say you switch, flip that switch my my living room is like a 20 foot by 20 foot space <laughs> like i can't really walk across that in and be in any any environment you'd build in a game you know i'm going to reach the edge of that then what do they do yeah so you're talking about like physically walking yeah, yeah. physically right. is the problem which would so. which would solve part of the issue right like if you if right. you could actually walk around if you're in a giant green field and you put on a VR headset and you could actually walk around the space. Uh, that's different. So the vast majority of them use teleportation. Mm -hmm. Like I, I probably nine out of 10 games use some kind of teleportation mechanic to get around it, which is, if you think about it really amazing, um, that, that, that the, the idea of teleportation causes f less nausea and, right, right. and <laughs> a disorientation than moving through the virtual space because that is something that is completely unnatural for us in, in the world to just pop from one location to another. But, uh, people don't seem to have a problem with that, which is fascinating. Well, so, so I actually saw one game and it, it wouldn't work in most games, obviously, but it it was like a horror game that I saw somebody playing that solved it in a really unique way that it constructed the environment in the amount of space that you have. And the way it did it is oh. like, oh, you need to go through this door. 
And so you'd go in the door and you'd hit your real wall. And so it'd take a left turn and it used horror elements like the, you know, supernatural hallways wrapping on themselves. So you might go through that hallway like three times. Oh, that's trippy. That's kind of cool. That's that's really cool. That was probably the most unique way I saw them solve it. So that person could literally walk for, you know, a mile in the environment, but he really hadn't even left his living room. So that's crazy. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I'm I'm a little dubious, even though I'm I like it. Uh, All the experiences are very they're they're basically demos, even even the ones that you're paying full price for. The longest experience I've seen is 10 hours. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people are interested in Half-Life Alex is because they are saying it is a full, like, 40-plus hour game experience. So so uh, in in other gaming stuff, both of you guys um, played with uh, Microsoft's, the Xbox um, xCloud on your iOS devices. Yep. Indeed. Yeah. So, uh, Brett, what... What's your? Oh, we'll hear from Brett first, I guess. I'm pretty impressed with it for an in-home thing. I got, I had the chance to play uh, Google Stadia at PAX this year, this past fall, and that ran really well. Um, but that was obviously in a very controlled environment on very specific hardware. Um, I'm doing a, a very specific demo, and the fact that I loaded up the Master Chief Collection on my iPad and was able to play Halo 1 um, and do things like, you know, swap the the graphics thing still works where you can do the remastered graphics or the classic graphics. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I played uh, a couple levels of Halo Reach, and I I think it works really well. Um, I noticed it's streaming, so there's, like, some compression issues with um with the visuals when when there's like little hitches and it's like oh artifacting because it's got to you know catch up but those are very minor honestly the biggest downside for me right now is not having haptic or feedback rumble in the controllers is is that something that they're looking to solve i i haven't seen anything on it i've only seen like on like Reddit or on the forum on different forums, people were complaining there was no rumble and a representative would be like, Hey, it's not currently supported, but we're looking into it. Yeah. But you know, who knows if that's, that might just be them saying it in that forum just to be like, Hey, we're, we are taking your feedback into consideration. Mm -hmm. Um, We're aware of it. It's not doable, but we can't say that because then you'll all get mad. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, and, uh, one of one of my our friends even mentioned it's like uh, that might make sense with the latency. Um, yeah, I I didn't notice any major issues with latency, but your eyes are actually worse at noticing latency than your body. So, like a rumble not lining up with when you're pulling the trigger uh, would probably feel weirder than the latency that your eyes would notice. So I could definitely see that being an issue. But honestly, I was totally impressed with the latency. It's definitely noticeable, but I, I I think I mentioned in our chat that it's it was less noticeable than the latency in Halo networked or not networked, but over the internet uh, co-op. Oh yeah, that was pretty bad though. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh. but that was playable, even though it was bad. 
it was playable and this was felt way better than that so yeah i think the only latency issues i had were when i was trying to snipe was when i it was like it's just i'm i can't i don't feel like i can quite aim it exactly where i want to i i didn't try sniping i i played a a couple levels of halo one and i don't think either of the levels i was in had snipers so I'll have, I'll have to go back and give that a try. I was in uh, the new the new Alexandria, uh, Halo Reach. Oh, Alexandria, Exodus, Exodus. Sorry, the one where you're like through the city and you have to do the the jetpacks. I wanted oh yeah some yeah. decent variety. The only other thing I was finding, and this may be a controller issue and not a gameplay issue, was that occasionally it wasn't registering that I was holding down the trigger. Oh, interesting. Like I couldn't charge a plasma rifle or my, my assault rifle wouldn't fire. Right. Like I'd have to like spam the trigger to get it to burst fire basically. Oh, weird. Yeah. You you might want to try a different controller because I, I don't think I've noticed that. Yeah. Okay. I was curious if you had any similar thing or if it was just me. Yeah. I I thought it worked great too. Um, I, uh, it was weird. I, I don't even know if it was artifacting, but I noticed in Halo 1, uh, specifically, especially when I was driving in a Warthog, when there was that fast movement, I could mm. t- I could tell the streaming couldn't keep up. But it wasn't even yeah. really like artifacting. It was like it was like loss in in uh, resolution in the moving right. in the moving assets. So I do wonder, though, I'm playing on an iPad Pro, uh, the 13 inch iPad Pro, and I wonder if that would have been a lot less noticeable if I'd been playing on an iPhone. Mm, so, yeah. cause I don't, I, I don't know. I don't even know if they picked a device size that they calibrated against, which would be a total reasonable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, other than that, I, it played great. I, I was headshotting grunts and really easily and killing hunters with the pistol. So, didn't really notice any like differences in playing it felt exactly like i was playing it normally so it's one of those experiences that i'm not going to probably ever hop in and play a competitive game no no but if i need to go bust through a few destiny bounties or you know we're getting together to play rocket league might not be a good example yeah yeah (laughs) you know a, a more casual game where it's it's not as high intensity um that's exactly what this is for and and i think it feels really good and i will say probably my one criticism about it um was i think it's dumb not to support virtual controls of some kind Mm, yeah um obviously it's not going to be an experience you want to play a game like halo with but there's games out there that a virtual controller would work fine for. And, you know, if if you're in the line at the DMV or something like that, you're not going to pull out a controller, but I'd still like to be able to play some, some casual games on my phone yeah. over xCloud. Um, so, yeah, that, that was kind of one of my criticisms. I don't know if that's something that I'm ever considering or if it's always going to require a controller. Maybe they'll just have Cortana built in so you can yell, Move forward. <laughs> exactly. Throw a grenade. Strafe right. 
I forgot about that. I forgot. Oh, uh, grenade. <laughs> I totally forgot that was a thing. Oh, we're, we're gonna have, we're gonna have to put that in the show notes. Uh, you want to send us out? Uh, do you want to send us out? Sure. Do it. Oh, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Um, insufficiently advanced episode one, not two. I almost said two, but you know what? It's episode one. Thank you guys for, and gals, thank you everyone for listening, tuning in this week, and we'll be back in a couple more weeks, two weeks to be exact. That's the plan. That's the plan at least. A fortnight. A fortnight. Uh, We'll be back in a fortnight to probably not talk about Fortnite because that's not our speed. (laughs) But we'll have all sorts of new news stories and maybe we'll learn a little bit more about that uh, Apple SE or the iPhone SE too. So, yeah. Until next time, I'm Brett. I'm Timothy. And I'm Michael. We'll see you later. This is the unofficial music for our podcast. I'll figure out something for for the end of this one. It'll just be me singing. Just sing. Just sing something. This is the unofficial music for our podcast. <laughs> that actually would be right. That's it right there. Oh no! What have I done? <laughs> You've become a star. He's he's gonna go like auto tune that clip and <laughs> oh god yes make it a make it a rap. <laughs> what what are, this would be way this would be way too much work, but it would be really funny to have a different theme song every single podcast and just c- oh my keep gosh. keep saying the gag of like <laughs> well we're trying still trying to figure out what we want to make. Why are there so many? Songs about podcasts. (laughs) All these voices in my head. (laughs) This would be good. Uh, See, you guys have already come up with three. We're we're (laughs) close. Timothy, it's your turn, man. I mean, we're pulling our our weight. You do not want to hear me sing. (laughs) (laughs) So mumble rap. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Nom, nom, nom.